0: From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you WorldPay sales to FIS for $35 billion, Alipay does a thing with card and a German bank lets its customers decide its dress code. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 307 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square, London. I'm David Breer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Jason Bates. How's it going, Jay? Very well. How are you? I am good. I, like, I'm struggling to get words out, which is going to be a real interesting one on this podcast. But other than that, I've had a fun week.
1: Well, it should be a fun podcast then. <laughs> well, for us, maybe not for, for the poor, poor listeners. How about you? What, what have you been up to this week? Uh, a couple of workshops, uh, insurance company, and um, a, insurance? Big, a big uh, government thing. Um, yeah, really interesting. Really uh, good, Good week. Very good. Okay, and as always, we're not alone. So this week
0: we are joined by some lovely, lovely guests. So first up, making her sixth news appearance, Ooh. like we're going to have to get you a, a plaque and uh, something, uh, something to sort of commemorate this occasion. Uh, <laughs> Caroline Plum, CEO of Fluidly. How's it going?
2: Great, thank you. How are you?
0: I am very, very good. Yeah, I'm. I'm about a beer in before the podcast, that's so like, that's probably why it's going to be a difficult one. But uh, but um, sounds like you've been having a busy week.
2: Yeah, it has been a busy week actually. We've We've been thinking about the Banking Competition Remedies Fund and uh, all Free sorts many, of exciting yo. things like that. Yeah, exactly. It's been busy.
0: Well, after seeing that first pool come out, everybody's
2: like, I know. oh man, <laughs> yeah,
1: like, seemed like a good idea now, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, so,
2: suddenly.
1: Oh. It was like Leicester City winning the premiership. Suddenly everyone thinks it's possible. <laughs> and it's like, hold on, small players can do it as well. I'm in. Yeah. yeah, Norwich oh City next year, up in the Premier League. <laughs> Come on boys. I
2: can't cope with football and All
1: right.
0: All right. <laughs> and uh, next up, making his debut, we have Simon Balmain, who is a community specialist at Monzo. How's it going?
3: Good, good. It's nice to be here. Do I get a plaque as well? I think you well you get stickers at least. I mean Perfect. like after six Perfect. you get a plaque.
0: After eight you get re- something really special. Is this so, formalised? Like, Do we have like a league table going on? Pretty much. Oh, I think tech and are definitely on that. So uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, welcome to the show guys. Uh really good to kinda of have you guys on board and um hope we're gonna have some fun. All right, let's get on with the news this week. So first up, we have a story that is Worldpay sells to FIS and uh, changes its tech stack, which is super, super interesting. So uh, this is over on the BBC. Worldpay payments firm sells for forty-three billion dollars, which is a lot of money. Just saying, just in case you like, don't tell me, don't try and make me tell you how many zeros that is, but it's definitely a lot of zeros. So. Uh, Wellpay has been bought by Fidelity National Information Systems, so that's FIS, for 35 billion in cash and shares. Uh, Wellpay was sold by RBS in 2010. Uh, I don't think we've got the amount, but it definitely wasn't 43 billion at the time. That uh, was it. Yeah, yeah, that was my. I think it was two, two point two, two point three, something along those lines. Um, man, what do you guys think? This is kind of crazy.
1: Yeah. Decca Unicorn time. It's it's just uh, huge. It's interesting how something that came from one of the big banks, you know, everyone got rid of their payment processing. Everyone said this isn't something we want to own. We'll we'll move it off to the side and and you know it lives somewhere else. And then like payment, the internet happened. Payment processing took off, and suddenly you know the the little thing they sold off is worth what You know, it's worth a, what a big bank is worth.
2: Yeah, about the same as a parent right yeah. now.
0: Well, it, it sort of sucks on this one because if you look at, so back in 2009, the European Commission said RBS would have to sell its world pay business uh, as part of the condition for approving state aid to the bank. So it's one of those ones that now, you know, we were sort of saying about this beforehand and I've seen a lot of social about it, but it's like. Maybe, like, the government made them sell the wrong bit, essentially. Like, if the government have kept world pay $43 billion, <laughs> uh, RBS, not
1: that. So I'm just saying, you know. Yeah, but maybe if it would have been, maybe then RBS would have been worth, like hundred billion, and then WorldPay would have not been worth anything. <laughs> Potentially, maybe it's about yeah. the owners. But maybe. Well,
2: although I, you kind of think that Advent and Bain Capital, who bought the business in 2010, must have got a really good deal. You know, you know, it's a forced fire sale. Mm. I'm sure they picked it up cheap. They must have been delighted. And they probably, could being private equity, it would have all been debt anyway. So, how much of their own risk did they take? You know, and almost
0: I think, uh, none. Yeah, um, I <laughs> imagine many a cigar has been smoked this week. But uh, and the other thing that I found interesting in this one, if you don't uh, follow Nick Ogden on LinkedIn, he actually posted a uh, a picture of the original. Uh, Bank partnership program for WorldPay Limited. The internet created a global market, but the world doesn't have a single currency. So, this is the original business plan written back in 1997 for WorldPay. So, amazing. From 1997 to a £43
3: billion company. Pretty impressive. There can't be
2: many better returns.
3: Not at all. What do you think, Simon? It sounds to me like uh, it's very conditional. The thing about them changing their tech stack is a big part of it. I think. I mean, they say it's RBS technology, but isn't it actually NatWest technology? So it's even older than that. Uh, it sounds to me like this is something that was in the works for a while, and then they've obviously demonstrated the fact that they could build something new, as well as the other news about their integration, that I guess we're going to talk about. It sounds to me like these were two conditional parts of this deal. But I think when you have a company like Stripe and their trajectory, it's like anything, it, it, it increases the value mm. of everyone else in that space. It's like if Monzo does it really well, Starlink gets customers, Revolut gets customers in every other way. Hmm. So Rising it's, it's, tide floats all boat. Mm. Exactly, exactly. So it seems to me that, you know, we really haven't seen a trajectory like Stripe. I mean, it's really unprecedented in the amount of time they did it. And some people who were at WorldPay were looking at that thinking, this, this is going to help us. And now we see the result of that.
0: Well, that, that other part that you mentioned that, so this is uh, sort of news that's just come out, uh, I think today, actually, which is WorldPay becomes first acquirer to enable Amazon Pay. So I want, do you think that's the case then, Simon, that this is,
3: you know, yeah. now that that news is out, it's like, well, we can get all the good news out. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. And I, I think, you know, WorldPay, I don't think that people were looking at them as like a tech-first company for a while. So... In order to get a valuation like that and a sale like that, you have to demonstrate that you can partner with a really big tech company and it doesn't get much bigger than Amazon. It's like once you have one of those, you can go and talk to the rest and get the rest. Mm. It's like at Monzo, we recently did our like Flux thing. And for a while they were like working with small kind of retailers and then they got KFC. And now they can go out to like any big retailer and be like, look what we're doing.
0: Mm. Um, I guess the other interesting thing on this is FIS are spending money like, ridiculous. Like, you know, this is a big mostly known for core banking systems provider who are spending 35 billion dollars buying another company that is pretty amazing clearly lots of money in core banking systems that's good to hear
1: but there's something There was something buried in this around the fact that they'd spent 33 million last year on extricating its systems and overall spent 450 million pounds on the platform today with a further 100 million to be invested that's not modern tech stack size of spending so i do worry a little bit that great they bought something of scale and of size but is it ever going to be able to compete with the the new nimbler players with you know very modern approaches and very modern tech stacks because spending over what 600 million over a few years is a Big old spend for any modern technology company.
0: All all
2: that COBOL is really expensive to rewrite. Well, well, that's that's the
0: thing. This is a this is a um, almost a a, you know critical part of the infrastructure that's been built in big banks. It was just separated in the way that an iceberg separates from another big iceberg. Um, So it's not the fact that they're having to spend that amount of money is actually the 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 depths of the this the the problem essentially. So I I can't remember anybody ever sort of describing. it sort of upgrades to this system is like extricating before that sounds almost <laughs> archaeological doesn't it it's an interesting one
2: you could just rebuild the whole thing from scratch and switch it over
0: sure and we could have had a bloody good party at the end of that as well. <laughs> all right moving on so next up we have a story which is alipay does a thing with barclay card so over on fintech futures we have barclay card brings alipay payments to uk retailers so Barclay has partnered up with Alipay to allow retailers to accept Alipay transactions in store across the UK... I feel like I said Alipay a lot there. It feels mm. like, I feel like, like a we're A few bit. more times. Yeah. Uh, I, this is where I can announce Alipay. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really, I'm just joking. All right, this follows a pilot over the last two years that will now enable UK retailers to accept payments from Chinese visitors. So this is something that I think has been talked about for a long time, like the, you know, the power of Chinese tourism and actually the, the sort of weight on that, on uh, the, the global sort of system, and actually are people being forced to accept these things? Because if you go to anywhere like new york taxis except Uh, Apple Pay, Alipay, Mm. and like um, Amex now. It's just like, it's amazing that it's everywhere. But, you know, is this the the sort of continual march from China to dominational globally?
3: I think it's a bit of a sort of chicken egg thing because I remember the first time I saw a major retailer with Alipay, like promotional stuff in the store. I'm pretty sure it was Holland and Barrett. And I I don't know if it's... (laughs) I random. I know, it seems really random. And I don't know if it's a little bit of confirmation bias, but at the same time, I also noticed that there was a lot of Chinese people in the store at the same time, so you're like know, market
2: like, research like, done. yeah
3: exactly well are they offering alipay because they had a lot of chinese people shopping in the store or did they have a lot of chinese people in the store well and there, they there offer was a, a
1: 2018 nielsen survey that said 93 percent of chinese tourists say that they would spend more in a store and that 60 percent of merchants adopting alipay said they would clearly seen a growth in foot traffic and revenue so from a business model uh, you know a business a uh, revenue perspective for big chains especially the high-end prestige brands i'm guessing like holland who, and barrett i like holland and barrett uh <laughs> but, you know they they there's a good good uh, story behind actually how much does this cost to implement and across all of your stores and chains you know here we go But it is part of that, you know, this is the beginning of the end, people. You know, this (laughs) this is suddenly we've got something with billions of users in China, massive growing ecosystem with a business case where they can say to Western providers, you guys should really accept this. Like stage three of this plan is launching Alipay for everyone in the West. Because Mm. once everyone accepts it, you know, Alipay isn't a bank it's a scheme you know they run essentially their own rails as well as all of the financial services behind that so it's a big lever mm. for these billions of people in order to to leverage a, you know to to leverage against mastercard visa amex a whole new play with a, a you know a, a set of financial services attached where they don't have to pay interchange where they're not having to pay fees they run the whole thing themselves
3: so
2: it's just a wedge it's a wedge
3: it's a thin Get wedge in. Yeah, I I find this whole sort of this culture of uh, a super app really interesting as well because it's like not just Alipay but WeChat as well you know Mm -hmm. we have a big Chinese community in Birmingham where I live and my cousin she hosts Chinese students they all have Alipay on the front page of the phone they all have WeChat Mm. and they do Basically everything, every service that these apps offer, which is a ton of stuff, mm. yeah. taxis, you know, well, Uber equivalent, yeah. like everything. I mean, it's essentially
1: a proxy operating system. It's a proxy app store. It's like, okay, I've got my Android phone, I've got my iPhone, and there's all the apps there. But on top of that is WeChat, which has its own, you know, app store and ecosystem. So uh, which I think is why, you know, iPhone and Google, uh, Apple and and Google don't just don't have the leverage in China, because this proxy layer Mm. is really where it all lives. You know, they built up from the hardware to the operating system. And in the West, Apple's like, great, we'll charge everyone 30%. They just don't have that leverage in China. And WeChat and Ali, you know, Ali do? Well, it's it's a big number as well. So Visit Britain
0: is expecting 483,000 visits from China in 2019. And that's a 43% rise for, since 2017. So that's pretty impressive. Um, we, <laughs>
2: Fall of the pound.
0: Well, well, exactly. Very likely. So, <laughs> as in it's cheaper to come over here and yeah, potentially. Yeah. Um, we actually managed to speak to Tao Tao, who is the AliPay's business development director to find out what's been going on with this
4: partnership. Hello everyone, many thanks to 11FS for having me. My name is Tao, I'm the BD Director of Alipay. The reasons of Barclays' partnership are very obvious. Barclays has great merchant base in the UK. By partnering with Barclays, it's the logic step for us to offer Chinese tourists a seamless digital payment experience when traveling to the UK. By offering Alipay payment method, Barclays will not only diversify the merchant services from traditional card payments, but also generate additional revenue stream. So how the partnership works? To expand on the partnership specifics, the agreement will enable UK retailers to accept in-store Alipay payment without replacing their existing point-of-sale system. Retailers will also benefit from being at the fingertips of hundreds of millions highly engaged Alipay users who will be able to search for outlets near their location, find out the brand details, and whether there are many discounts available. For UK merchants, the benefits of this partnership is very clear. By accepting Alipay, one of the world's most used super app, they will be able to capitalize on the growing numbers of Chinese tourists to use mobile payments over cash. Based on the recent Nielsen report, 93% Chinese tourists said they would like to spend more in a store that accepts mobile payments. Among the merchants surveyed that had adopted Alipay, nearly 60% said they had seen growth in both food traffic and revenue. For Chinese tourists, this new agreement offers them travelling in the UK the familiar mobile payment and the cashless, cardless lifestyle experience that they enjoy at home, as well as Alipay's competitive real-time foreign exchange rate. So what will be the next? As a result of booming Chinese tourism, we're working with a numbers of partners globally to help global businesses benefit from this trend. Our strategic partnership with Barclays is another step in this direction, aiming to help connect more U.K and European retailers with Chinese tourists. So in this near future, we are always considering future partnerships that will enable local businesses to better connect and engage with the mobile savvy Chinese consumers. Thank you very much.
1: Right for one, welcome on you, Chinese overlord. So I just wanted to, uh, to make that clear.
0: Well, it's um, it's super interesting, isn't it? Because you know, being in a situation where essentially, and, and it was it was fascinating because it's not just payments; it's about the integration of all of those social services. So being in a situation where actually they they're able to direct people <laughs> to particular offers or particular shops based on the level of
1: integration—that's that you know—it's smart on their part, right?
2: Yeah, and you can get monitored by the Chinese government.
1: <laughs> there is that too. Well, it's interesting as a political angle to this, because obviously in the US, we've seen a big pushback against telco companies and putting their 5G technology into the US. At what point do, does the UK or any any government say, well, actually, if, if suddenly Ali is getting a lot stronger and is is pushing through a lot of payments, is this going to be a problem in, in terms of that uh, kind of
3: macro global economics thing? Yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that uh, Alipay can probably completely monopolize the market of Chinese tourists that come to the UK and students and things like that but where do they go after that if what's their bigger plan after mm-hmm. that how do you how do you convince non-Chinese people to start using your service because that's what you need for like real scale to compete with whoever else that you're competing with in the UK I'm not I would like to hear more about their plans for that really
2: but I'm quite interested in the fact that yeah, you can use it in New York taxis. You can use it in New York taxis, you could use it in the UK, you can use it globally. Mm. You know, Maybe that is the global ubiquitous thing that WorldPay we'll are after in the first place.
0: There you go. Well, I, I imagine they're worth a lot more than WorldPay right now, right, <laughs> in, terms of, uh, in terms of the side. Um, actually, sort of um, connected to this story, it's uh, about contactless is, is well and truly continually on the rise in the UK. So this is the UK embraces contactless payments even more over on Finextra. So total UK contactless Spending rose by nearly a third last year to 69 billion, or uh, one world pay as it's uh, commonly (laughs) referred to, uh, with tap and pay now accounting for more than 40% of all card transactions. So, 123 million debit and credit cards are now contactless in the UK. That's just a stunning figure, isn't it, really? Um, so thanks to adoption on public transportation, which, to be honest with we, we will sort of talk about like a, a bit of an early rider for a mm. uh, major change in geography. So, you know, we saw Oyster here and Octopus, mm. Octopus? Mm. in, in Hong, Hong, Kong. Hong Kong and uh, Gautrain in South Africa. And, you know, actually transportation and contactless payments always seems to be like a, a forerunner for mm. major payments disruption. but. Pretty impressive stuff. What do you guys think?
3: Yeah, I mean, the the transport thing is an interesting angle because I guess London as the capital is always kind of a little bit further ahead than anywhere else. But at least in Birmingham, it was only maybe a year ago that you could get on a bus and just use your debit card. Like that's not before that, like you had to have cash or there was some weird like smart card that you had to top up Mm. or something like that. It's not so. And Birmingham's the second biggest city. It's not like some small like random place. You can imagine (laughs) that. uh, All small towns, all smaller cities have been following suit only over the last 12 months, which is probably where these figures are coming from, a lot of that. Um, That's that's
0: definitely true. Like in Norwich, we haven't got buses yet. So uh, (laughs) the fact that you've got buses with
3: contactless, you're just showing off.
2: It just goes to show how lazy humans really are, though. The fact that we massively value the ability just to tap it and go rather than that whole two seconds it took to put a pin number in uh so i mean there's something brilliant about that though it's, like, it's a time saving isn't it and um but it does sort of raise a question that you kind of have to have a bank account now uh to start traveling to start buying in shops you see shops that don't take cash and there is something very excluding about if you don't have a bank account or you don't have ability to have a contactless card you know where does that leave you so you know, I really like it as a lazy consumer, um, but I think it raises a whole bunch of questions as well.
3: Well, one thing that, w- that we are trying to do at, at Monzo is really help those people that haven't been able to access bank accounts and high street banks and things like that. We're doing a lot of work in that area. There's a lot of regulation that stops it from happening, but I think eventually we'll get there. And if we can, you know, and all the fintech companies can break down that barrier and then the high street banks follow, then really there should be no reason that, that people can't get a contactless card. And I, I do think, I do agree with what you said, especially when I go around Old Street and you see the little pop-ups that are like card-only. Mm. What if somebody wants a donut and they don't have any cash? Like, but, you know it, it, I mean? but digital sort of
1: beyond financial services is creating that two, three-tier society. Mm. You know, if you have access to a laptop and a mobile phone, then suddenly you're in a different world. Yeah. Below that, if you have access to basic financial services and an address, then suddenly, you know, Amazon can deliver and all, you know, you, you're living that life. If, if you're below that line, yeah. you know, you're living a hundred years ago you know compared to where where we are and that that tax on people who have to pay in cash yeah or or can't set up a direct debit, you know, is is quite something. I mean, it just pushes people down. So, Well, I mean, we covered
0: this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, actually, in terms of like the move towards cashless and actually like the impact that it has actually on retailers. So, you know, in being in a situation where actually there isn't enough cash moving around these places because everybody's using contactless or cards, then actually just the uh, the expense for shops of moving cash around to ensure you've got change is, is moving, uh, you know, Planet Organic uh, downstairs from our office is completely cashless now. So, um,
2: but what about a- Holland and Barrett?
3: <laughs> yes, what about <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right, moving from spending cash to not having any. So, this is a story over on Fast Company, which means that so it says that 21% of Americans have no savings, mm. which is pretty scary, meaning uh, 21% of Americans aren't actually saving any money at all. A uh, new survey from Bankrate, which interviewed 1,003 respondents. Weird number. Um, I mean, like, somebody, was like, got a- somebody <laughs> was like, yeah, if we make this, like, an even number, people are going to not believe the survey. So, like, <laughs> just throw a three on the end of that thing. Uh, respondents via a telephone uh, survey found 21% of people aren't saving any money at all. Um, 16% report savings more than 15% of their yearly earnings. Uh, and according to the report by uh, career builder nearly 10% of those making $100,000 or more uh, say that they can't make ends meet
1: it's the poor rich tell you it's a thing
0: but that but that is a thing isn't it because i, I do wonder in that uh, you know particularly in in that economy actually whether a hundred thousand pounds, a hundred thousand dollars sounds like a lot of money. But actually, if you're being incentivized to, like, keep up with the Joneses and, you know, buy that new car and, you know, particularly in, a, in a, an environment where a status is very important, then yeah. maybe a hundred thousand dollars
3: doesn't get you very far. Or um, if you live in an area with super high gentrification, like in San Francisco. That's true. So Mike my cousin works at Google and uh, you know, he's been there for a while and he lives in Mountain View. And it wasn't until I sort of talked to him and spent a bit of time with him that I realized that actually a lot of people who start at Google and get uh, make a lot more than your average people they can't afford to live anywhere near Google they can't live in San Francisco they can't live in Mountain View they can't even live in Oakland like I remember when Oakland was the hood yeah. <laughs> and it's not now it's super gent they're living forty miles away
2: I'm getting my tiny little violin out here. <laughs> oh
3: my God. Now, I mean, 100,000
1: puts you in the top 10% of earners in the US. Yeah. So the the median is like, uh, what did it say? 60,000 uh, 60, or something. But the top 10% are, uh, let's see, over 90,000. Top 1% over $250,000. So, you know, that's a... It's a pretty good salary. So, so I guess the
0: second point on the hundred thousand was probably slightly different from the first point, right? If twenty percent, twenty one percent of in total of Americans aren't saving any money, Mm. that's like twenty one percent of people who are going to completely screw the the system when they come to retiring down the line, right? Sure. Um, The you know ten percent of those making a hundred thousand who can't make ends meet probably just need to fucking plan better, right?
1: Especially because in that survey it said. Uh, 56% of people said they were in over their heads. (laughs) It's like, right. So that whole vulnerability, you know, we've got that consumer culture, we've got the live for now, FOMO. I'm seeing someone travel to, I don't know, somewhere interesting for spring break on, on facebook yep. so i'm going to do that too and suddenly that that what everyone is doing means i need to spend the future i don't really see any old people on facebook so <laughs> you know no one, no one's struggling and retiring uh, on instagram in my feed so.
2: but then the well, counterpoint uh, is like if they genuinely in the 101,003 100 got a proper sample across you know, everybody and weighted that properly across all demographics. And actually it's quite depressing news because it's actually saying that a lot of people, you know, are in financial distress or really just only just keeping their head above water. And maybe it's not the FOMO and not the Instagram. It's actually just the reality of trying to make ends meet in the place where, you know, um, food is expensive. Accommodation is expensive. Living is expensive.
3: It is. I would be, um, I would be interested to see what the difference is in UK figures and how the NHS plays into that because, a lot of regular folks I know in the U.S., they have a, you know, they might have a small condition that requires regular medical uh, like sp- supplies that are not things that you can buy over the counter. And it's costing them an extortion amount, extortionate amount of money. I mean, um, you know, I, I had a partner that was American that had, I don't know, I think she broke her arm or something basic like that. And it costs, her uh, like, 10 grand in medical bills with no something insurance. basic. That's,
0: like... Well, no, but here, I, I, you, like, compared to here where you can just go to your yeah. A&E, and like,
3: like, it's not, like, a debilitating lifelong illness. I mean, right. this is like i will mean, be like upset, that. but... Yeah, like, yeah they're, exactly. They're exactly. Gonna... But it shouldn't cost you 10 grand, right? That's sure. Yeah. So, and imagine if you... I don't know. Imagine if you have, like, diabetes or something. You need yeah. insulin mm. every day and you have to pay for it. You need it every day or you will die. So How then, much is that going to cost?
1: I've just looked it up in, in the UK, 2,620 oh. uh, <laughs> people... Uh, and a quarter of british adults have no savings and one in 10 admit that they spend more than they earn so you know it, mm. it's there's a mm. there is a trend there's a you know there's a big push or big question around whether consumer debt is the is going to be the new bubble the new thing that kind of pushes people along especially in very low interest rate environments can i spend more than i earn yes i can is it crippling now no but might it be in a few years yes
2: and do we think it's like Financial problems, generally, or is it like you know financial literacy? You know, what's the balance?
0: I mean, if only we knew an American to talk to to find out. (laughs) And on that point, why don't we hear from Eleven FS America's MD, Sam Moore?
5: America, at least in my adult life, has never been a nation of what I would term consistent savers. We notoriously pursue the American dream of having a house with a driveway full of cars. Perfect landscaping, um, a college degree, and fantastic vacations we take every year. The the reality is, on average, though, we are terrible at saving money. It's a practice many of us put off until it's too late. Uh, Part of this is obviously easy access to credit, but a significant contributor is simple willpower, or the lack thereof. Many Americans want it now, and we're willing to sacrifice longer-term financial stability for near-term purchases, and fun, to be blunt. And look, it wasn't always this way. U.S. families typically saved roughly 10% of their personal disposable income back in the 60s and 70s, according to the U.S. Federal Reserve. That percentage fell steadily during the 80s and 90s. It hit rock bottom at just under 2% around the 2008 financial collapse. Recession obviously had an effect on everybody. It helped nudge consumers back into savings. By about 2012, the savings rate peaked back up into double digits, but we quickly fell back into our poor habits here in the U.S., Why? Because Americans love, love, love debt and we love, love, love credit cards. U.S. credit card debt hit $870 billion in 2018. Think about that. As of December 2018, U.S. credit card debt was at $870 billion. That's the largest amount ever. The mean credit card debt of U.S. households is around $5,700. And that's according to the U.S. Federal Reserve. Credit cards are the fourth largest portion of consumer debt in the U.S. Largest debt category, mortgages, so homes, then student loans. It's very unique to the U.S. Auto debt and then credit cards. So let's talk about student loans a little bit. There are more than 44 million student loan borrowers who collectively own about $1.5 trillion in student loan debt in the U.S. Average student loan debt for the class of 2016 is around $37,000. This is near and dear to my heart because I have a bunch of kids that are in or just about to start college. So look, it's imperative as both fintech founders and bankers that we help people. One, learn how to save. So education obviously needs to be there. Two, we need to make it as frictionless and easy to save without thinking about it. Hello, Acorns. Hello, Digit. I'm looking right at you. And three, we need to come up with creative social and banking apps to help pay down these debt categories. I love this quote by our good friend here at 11FS, John Hope Bryant. He's from founder of Operation Hope. He said, you can make money two ways, make more or spend less. And it really is that simple. We as leaders and innovators in the FI space need to focus on helping consumers embrace this simple concept by offering simple solutions and products whenever we can.
0: Holy crap! Eight hundred and seventy billion. That is impressive. That's roughly thirteen world pays. Just world pays.
1: <laughs> wow! But if there was ever a good segue to uh, to talking about Monzo's recent announcement, that was it.
3: Like savings, tell us about it. Um, I think, in general, not just with the savings that we want to do, but one thing that we've always been really focused on is is. You could kind of peg it as financial education, but actually it should be delightful and fun and encourage people to keep an eye on things. And that's the approach that we have when we build everything. I mean, when I look at fintech apps and they don't show you your feed straight away, I just think you've got it all wrong, right? You need to encourage people to be always keeping an eye on what's happening. The right amount of information, not too dense and just in in a fun way. You know, I always think that Monzo is more like Instagram than it is any bank because especially in terms of the amount of times people open the app every day. It's that stickiness, that delightfulness that we've been trying to build. And I think that is the approach to encourage people to save, to get out of debt. You know, things like the way that we built pots and the way that you have your targets going towards them and the images that we just mm-hmm. put out, all, all the things that we learned from that that, that comes into what we'll do with savings and, and all that. So, there's an announcement so, today mm-hmm.
1: around Monzo and Oak North joining forces to offer savings accounts. Oh, a, cool. That's out. out Good. Yes. <laughs> so, that's out. um Easy access account offering 1%, six month fixed term offering and offering 1.3%, up to personal 12 month fixed rate ISA, uh, I think at uh, 1.5, 1.0, some, somewhere around that. So, it's interesting again that. Tom's view of financial control panel and connecting into other providers you know does this lead a way, lead the way to an into
3: integrating savings into day-to-day spend yeah I would I would say so I would say so I think people have a big mental block around savings I think that's that's why you get these figures that we see right now there's really been no systems that encourage good financial health and savings uh, I think we're just so, sort of starting to see the tide turn towards that and people have different approaches to see how they can make that happen. That's not to say that ours is the right one. There could be ones that are way more effective than what we're doing and we'll learn from them and build that into what we're doing. But as long as everybody's kind of understanding what the problem is, then that's, that's hopefully where we can all collectively make a difference. What do you think, Caroline?
2: I think all the nice stuff around savings is about nudging you in nice direction. Maybe there's not enough doom. Like Actually, you know, maybe in the 1960s, 1970s, people were really conscious about what was happening. You know, it was sort of the missile crisis. People were worried about, like, the threat of Cold War. There was a whole load of other sort of dynamics that perhaps people weren't as optimistic.
1: Not enough fear in society, fear. that's what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs>
5: no, I,
2: mean, was, I think we have become really sort of hedonistic and optimistic about, and it just put it off till tomorrow. Um, and I think that, I think it's really nice that savings are kind of now making it easier to save and nudging so but i think also that kind of responsibility the kind of the implications if you don't hmm. kind of needs to come through a bit more as well
1: I, I do worry though about the sort of the savings fintechs because the whole let's round up your coffee yep. and to put something aside or let's save a few pounds here or there like that's just not enough it, no. it's just not enough in order to make the impact that you're going yep, to need more doom. so in some <laughs> way like uh is it like the candy floss it's great to just have a bite and you you know you feel great about it or or you take people who take vitamins uh mm-hmm. apparently eat less healthily because they feel like they're That's you know totally that being healthy <laughs> and totally i'm eating me. my my, my <laughs> thing you know is that is the the fintech sort of uh roundup is that like the vitamin where mm. you feel like you're doing it but you've only saved 50 pounds this year
2: and you're probably gonna put on holiday anyway
1: and really, you needed to save 10% of your income. It's like, that's quite a lot of pain and me not going out or not buying something yes. versus, you know, it, are people feeling, feeling the pain?
2: But that's cultural, isn't it? Like beyond the nice day-to-day, that is about, you know, 10% of savings. It's a, it was a huge amount. Mm. Um, and now 10%, 10% disposable income. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a big societal shift.
3: Mm. I was feeling really positive about our locked pots when we launched them. Um, and then it kind of went wrong. <laughs> we, our customer support got overloaded by people asking us to unlock their pots early because that was the only way to unlock it. That was the friction that we had implemented. You have to contact customer support and they'll unlock it. And I felt like it was working well until that overload, and then it mm. just it wasn't it wasn't scalable. So now we've kind of unfortunately, it's just like oh, you can just unlock it yourself, which is nowhere near enough friction to make it work. And we're trying to figure out that middle ground of that. So,
1: so what do you think led to people wanting to? needing to unlock running out of money
0: well I know like do they they not think about this or I mean do we need to do a survey with 2003 (laughs) people (laughs) like what what would be really interesting is if you gave if you were able to to give uh, one of your friends permission to unlock it so actually if you could give if I could give Jason if you gave me I
1: would not unlock it (laughs) I I said a friend
0: Before we take a quick break, we just wanted to remind you guys that we helped launch the Football Fintech League this week. The league starts on Friday, 22nd of March and features our very own 11FS, 11FC, as well as Curve, Funding Options, GoCardless, Monzo, Receipt Bank, Revolut and Starling. Uh, if you want to, head over to FinTech League to follow all the action on Twitter.
1: Do, did I hear that RBS are putting some remedies money into a five million prize for that? Or uh, This is unconfirmed. <laughs> We'll be back very shortly.
4: <laughs> this deal sets apart. This
3: economy okay, is. We, going need to 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 yeah. we need to get down to business.
4: Clearly, the pressure we're is the beginning.
3: Business uh, investment, jobs, In on the up. Brexit, Brexit, Brexit.
1: you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra.
0: Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. We'll be over in New York for Fintech Week from the 1st to the 5th of April. If you're over in New York City, uh, catch Uncle Sam hosting a Fintech Insider live show with the DIT and very, very special guests from Starling and TransferWise, to name a few. Uh, We'll be talking about the future of money on the 3rd of April at 6.30 over in the Altman building. We're also going to be partnering with Empire Startups for their 7th Annual Fintech Conference over in New York as well on the 3rd of April. If you want to explore the agenda and check out getting a 15% discount on your tickets, just drop in the code 11FS. On with the show.
1: We always tell you we love reading your reviews, so we wanted to shout out to the most recent ones that we've seen this last week. Thanks to Alpha Betcher, Daimarai, and mona Kun 123 i'm sure that's not your real name who submitted their review uh, reviews via itunes thanks so much guys we really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and keep the reviews coming so Alphabetcher said working in the banking sector myself i always love listening to industry experts cast their opinions on current trends it makes my commute to and from work more bearable keep up the great work And Daimari said, if you're in the financial services or just want to really understand this amazing fintech space like I am, this is the podcast for you. Nice conversations. I'm not sure I'd ever describe it as that, but there you go. Conducted with industry experts with a genuine feel and the right amount of banter. Keep up the amazing work, 11FS team. Thanks very much. On with the show.
0: All right, next up, we have a story, which is Grab grabs more market share in Southeast Asia. So over on FedExtra, we have Grab maps out their new product lines. So Grab Financial Group announces its grow and grab roadmap. Like, man, I said Alipay a lot. I'm saying grow and grab quite a lot in, in this section as well. So they're launching a SME lending and micro insurance for drivers in Singapore. So this is essentially Grab offering financial services to all of their uh, drivers in their ecosystem. Citizen, which is an amazingly sensible play, right? You know, this is a captive audience for these guys that they can offer all plethora of different things to. What do you guys think?
1: Well, Caroline's the SME expert.
0: She's also shaking her head.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anything about Grab Financial Group. Um, but it all sounds very sensible. If you've got a captive audience, then naturally you want to start expanding the service offers to them and start cross-selling, upselling more. And clearly, um, you know, micro insurance and lending is the next step.
1: Uh, Wikipedia says that they started with uh, 2014 1.2 million downloads Uh, they claimed in 2013 to be doing one booking every 8 seconds or 10,000 a day in November 2017 they reached a billion rides with 66 concurrent rides in one second across 7 countries occupying a a 97% market share in the third party taxi hailing market and 72% in the private vehicle hailing market it also claimed to have 2 million driving partners, 68 million app downloads and 3.5 million daily rides. Whoa, 2, two million drivers? 2 million driving partners. Wow, yep. that is
0: insane. That is like a huge, huge thing. So across Southeast Asia, then they're, if they start, you know, releasing financial services, yeah. this is going to be a, a major player.
1: They're the, they're the Uber killer in Southeast Asia. And Li- think- literal Uber killer,
0: not like how
3: people use Uber <laughs> as a, like... Uh, What's interesting about their press release is like it goes back to what we were talking before and super apps, and they've literally capitalized the word super app and the S and the A. They're really making a claim for it. They've made a thing. Yeah, it's it's a thing. It's a thing. It, it's an interesting cultural phenomenon that we we're not seeing it over here as much. I wonder if if we've if that would even happen over here. I feel like I feel like it's there's too much anti-competitive regulation over here. for like one yeah. company like that to start in one place and then quickly do like a million other things and take over. I mean, it's arguable, I guess, but it seems to be just accepted in Singapore and China and these places. And
2: we've and got the Lyft, a- Lyft IPO this week as well, right? Ooh, Lyft. So, I love Lyft. Um, I mean, is that going to expand into a huge SMU lending as well? I mean, they've got some insurance offers, but
0: I mean, given that there's a Remedies Fund going, then they probably should have a crack at it, shouldn't they? Can they argue that is uh, an SME infrastructure technology play? or
2: In the UK market, I'm
0: not
1: so sure. Not so much, no. But it's one of those things where, you know, banking, payments, insurance, lending belongs at the point of need it doesn't belong in the banking app you know you want to be doing lending for the thing that you want to buy you want to be insured to do the thing that you're you know you want to be insured to doing so if you're grab and this is a case of you're taking money through uh you know for your taxi rides you want that money now you want to be insured now maybe you're, you've had a bad week so Gig economy is, you know, it always has that up and down of feast and famine, and they want their drivers to stay working. So I think it's one of those things where it's not like, Grab says we want to be a bank. It's that they've got this massive market of customers who also work for them, and they can offer profitable financial services to them that, uh, in a way, that integrates just with what they're doing, rather than saying than leaving someone to say, "Well, I drive now, I don't have any money now, I need to go and find a bank, work out how much I need." No one wants to take all those existing steps; those additional steps.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting how you're seeing more and more these sort of industry plays. Dry adding financial services to them. You know, I used to see the ones of um, property rental, you know, very much adding payments, adding lending into them. And I heard of sort of, ca- isn't a lot of the cannabis retailing business, those sorts of areas also, I don't know. Is like, it? well, <laughs> in the US, <laughs> very legal. Okay. Um, but, you know, those are, a lot of that is the stack, same stack, right? It's about how do you drive payments in the retail mm. space, and again, in a vertical or perhaps in beauty, or, yeah. you know, I think it's a really interesting play. Well, is, it,
0: um, is it that, you know, big organizations kind of ossify around their business model, whereas startups are actually continually looking for that next thing especially if they're you know heavily VC backed they're having to look for that next billion pounds or billion dollars in in terms of the the returns that they can make so you know any organization that's created such a significant community has to monetize it in increasingly extreme ways and and like as you say like maybe financial services is just the the slice that people put on this stuff
2: yeah who owns the customer actually so you've got the banks doing I'm going to do horizontally and Mm. own this but actually maybe you have a stronger relationship with your your, you know, CRM provider or your, um, you know, back office systems provider if you're a cannabis retailer? Well, I think it's
1: the, it's, <laughs> you know, it's the evolution. We've seen, you know, we talk to clients about there's this commodity product layer. There's the thing that you always do. We've digitized it. We still offer a loan. We still offer a credit card. You've got these intelligent services that are kind of built on top of that. Well, what are people trying to do with this? And where does it fit? And how do I manage my life? But then, then if you take that further, you're into these extended journeys and suddenly it's, well, do I want to go to a bank to ask about a, um, a mortgage or do I want to uh, go to Zoopla and say, well, what do I think I can afford? Show me the houses I can afford and then I'll go and see it, I'll click yes, you give me six mortgage providers, I'll click one of them, job done. Like suddenly it's that, you know, we all go through these journeys where we switch from provider to provider and have to chain it together. And with APIs and open banking and everything else, suddenly those things are being chained. And who owns those extended journeys Mm. starts to get really interesting. So I I see that as the, like,
3: you know, it leads in that direction. Didn't Uber launch a debit card recently for their drivers or something as well? So this is like a similar thing to what Grab are trying to do with Grab Pay. Very sort of cynical about these closed loops, about these drivers and gig economies getting the money back into a financial system that's owned by the same people they're driving for. And at what point does that get exploited and Uber be like, Oh, you have to drive six hundred people the next week, otherwise you can't pay back the loan that we gave you and like it's very suddenly into you know, workhouse territory. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It gets very dark very quickly. <laughs> the Black Mirror episode exactly. will happen <laughs> next week.
0: I mean, the page on their internet Internet site is definitely not putting it in that way, but uh, yeah, yeah, I can see how it uh, how it can definitely kind of lead to those types of things. Uh, moving on, we next up we have a story over on Finextra, which is Standard Charter builds fintech bridge to matchmake with startups. So the bridge is an online portal designed to speed up the process for fintechs wanting to connect with the bank. Moving from an initial application to selection with, within just three months. Ooh, just three months. Just. <laughs> Uh, So SC Head of Ventures, uh, we also recognize that the best ideas can come from elsewhere, not just from inside, but also outside of the bank where we need to transform the bank. SC Ventures Fintech Bridge plays into our desire to continually look for new opportunities to collaborate with partners with outstanding creative talent across other footprints. So this is an interesting thing, I guess. But is this essentially a procurement portal, just sort of tarted up slightly? Uh,
2: I mean, it's not exactly new. I think we have got a lot of banks already doing this. And I suppose from a kind of um, startup side, you get a lot of approaches, certainly we do it fluidly, um, from lots and lots of accelerators, lots and lots of bank startups, fintech scouts and fintech teams and ventures teams. And I think you've got to be really careful about whether it's actually something that's going to go anywhere mm. um, because i think it's not just the remit of the you know how much can you get through to actually drive something commercially you can waste an awful lot of time a lot of effort and a lot of um you know you spend a lot of time money on it without actually getting any results and well, so kind of proof of concept opportunity to test uh well my, my reaction to the all,
0: all of this thing sometimes is just like it sounds really fucking fancy doesn't it like a startup bridge <laughs> when essentially just like info at standardcharter.com would have been fine in terms of like a mailbox for, hey, I'm interested in a partnership with you guys and I'm looking to do an interesting thing. Like, is there somebody to ma- you know, manage this mailbox?
1: Yeah, you know? I'm fascinated by the prize they hold up is this guaranteed uh, proof of concept, yes. which, I mean, we know startup CEOs that, uh, that say like if you put me in contact with a bank innovate or someone from Bank Innovation contacts me, I'm just not going to meet them because Bank Innovation are just the people that you don't want to work with because they always want the proof of concept and it just takes so much effort to make it all work. It never leads to anything in the business. So you end up being a proof of concept business yeah. where... Suddenly, you've, you're doing 20 proof of concepts for 20 banks. They all say, that's great. We've learned a lot, but we're not going to take this forward. And suddenly, you're sat there, you know, three years later having built proof of concepts for everyone.
2: You have to say, we take that approach, and then we we just won't do them. Because I think unless you've got a sponsor from the business line, the actual decision maker with the PL responsibility that actually wants to move a metric somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you can waste a lot of time.
1: I've seen that more and more. It's like you connect with a senior business person who thinks in a PNL way yep. and sees a way in which you drive her or his agenda. Yep. Then all of a sudden you're, you, you've got something there. You have someone whose day job it is to go out and find interesting things and do POCs. Very little organizational juice to drive things. Yep. Uh, that's an uphill battle to get the business to accept
0: that. Well, we, we found that firsthand, right? You're like, exactly as you say, Jason, it's like, hi, I'm the innovation manager trying to do a thing. And it's like, does the business know? <laughs> do does, they care? Yeah, does the business know? No, they don't. Okay, is this not value destroying for their PL? Yes, it might be. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: next, do you have budget? No. Okay. Yeah. Can so, you get them into this meeting? Well, not really. They're quite busy.
3: Mm, okay, now I see how this is all going to play out. Exactly. Not good. I'd be very worried about being somebody with a creative vision and an idea and needing funding and getting into one of these situations. And then you find out that, I don't know, SC or whoever is completely the wrong company to take it to the next level. You're done. Like, you can't go anywhere after that. I've just given my idea to someone else. All right. Next up, we have
0: a story over on Finextra. This is NatWest launches female-only crowdfunding program. So NatWest is hoping to help close the entrepreneurship gender gap through the introduction of a female-only crowdfunding program. The bank has teamed up with CrowdFunder on the back of their Back Her Business initiative, inviting women to register their business ideas and seek funding from the crowd. Uh, through so though most of the funding will come from the crowd the bank will also top up 1 million a year and will be offering 50% of an individual's fundraising target capped at 5000 pound for some of the projects what do you guys think about this
2: well i think ultimately anything that helps female entrepreneurship is a good thing so i'm all for initiatives that support overall and i saw some research you know on by diversity vc in the VVCA a while ago that said you know that uh, for every one pound of VC money, less than a penny uh, goes to all female founder teams. So there is still a massive problem around funding. Um, and anyone that's prepared to support it, uh, support it with money in particular, I think that's a good thing. I do take issue with some things around, you know, uh, things that say it's about lack of confidence for women. Um, and I'm not always sure that's the case. I think that actually there's lots of evidence that show that women get asked different questions, that they get assessed in different ways, that if women pitch the same pitch as men, it's all blind trial, that actually more people fund men. Um, so I don't think it's always about confidence. I do think it's actually about, you know, the whole ecosystem that needs to be done something about it.
0: Mm. I think my, my wife would definitely say Men are full of shit. Therefore, they're better at <laughs> pitching things uh, like big ideas and that type of stuff. Like Sarah's Sarah, a smart woman. Yeah, she is. I mean, like sample size of me. I think she's <laughs> she's
3: she's onto something. So, uh, no, but
0: the
2: evidence is like they literally tested the same script. Yeah. pitched by a man and pitched by a woman, and then when men get more funding, really. So uh, maybe so, maybe know, we just need just a to a get like a delivery kind of
1: of that uh, female founders can uh, can brief that are super smooth and smart. Who just they send out. They're actually the brains of the operation, and they could be like Svengali behind the scenes.
2: Oh, we this. could change change the environment. People. Oh, I'm talking about, <laughs> the I'm that
5: talking are about like now. <laughs> though. I'm talking about
2: if,
1: if you want to raise the money now, it's like changing the environments going to take a while.
2: I know we can't think that way, Jason. we got to
1: get more women. I think we got a new
2: business idea I'm here for agency? More women like um, in financing teams making the decisions you know, taking the view. And also I think training people on, on bias and asking what kind of questions to ask and think about that. But also women need to themselves mm. feel that they can start a business and take that chance.
0: Well, and I think the major part of this is, is generally the people who are investing are men. Right, So they're looking for more uh, uh, reflective masculine tendencies, in fact, of aggression and like, I'm going to dominate the world (laughs) and this is going to be the next. I'm getting, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away. But like being in a situation where actually maybe the idea on this one is if more females are actually distributing the funds, and and I would hope that Mm. NatWest are actually putting uh, more females in charge of actually deciding where the investments are actually made, that maybe that will lead to a, a better outcome in terms of the the dis- uh, disbursements of
3: these funds. Maybe. We will see. <laughs> all right. I'm, conf- uh, I'm confused about this bit, though, that says that crowdfunders will not get any equity stakes in the business.
2: Oh, really? That's
3: just, yeah, that's just a weird approach. Oh, donation like, mm-hmm. and reward-based. Yeah, wow. like, like the perks, but not the shares. This is all like, like uh, So we're very confused about this. And... Yeah. Well, is it like
2: a Kickstarter thing, then? Mm. Do I, is
3: well, even in really get... Kickstarter, some of them you get like equity. Well, yeah. yeah. Or like pseudo-equity
0: or at least just that thing that holds my camera that I really fancy having the idea of. But um, but no, it is an interesting one. They're sort of stripping some of these things back, aren't they, without necessarily
1: giving the the full thing on it. But It, it does fascinate me. There's a whole like systemic problem. How, where do you stop? Where do you stop pulling the thread? Like where are the two or three places that you can, you know, is it about actually, you know, um, uh, about really driving much more, as you say, like female-driven investment, which then you wouldn't have to run female sort of competitions at... That it, that it would it would change industry. I mean, one thing one thing that we noticed, especially in the Far East, there are so many like powerful senior women in AliPay, WeChat. Whenever we go to a conference, like the person speaking, you know, mm. ten, tends to be a woman. In and Africa, it's interesting, actually, it's like, isn't it? how does why is it there, and how does how does it all work? So.
2: Well, I think this month was also the Rose Review on Female Entrepreneurship, which was published this month. So that's the one that Alison Rose did. And I think um, they had three main opportunities that they wanted to help female entrepreneurs. So, yeah, definitely increasing the funding was one of them. And then this sort of greater family care and support and making entrepreneurship more accessible for women, Um, again, through mentors and networks. You know, I, I kind of, to some extent, I feel if you're going to write a report on female entrepreneurship, why wouldn't you ask a female entrepreneur? To do it, you know, if you're going to want a banking female entrepreneur, why wouldn't you ask Anne Bowden or you know someone? But aside from that, I think you know they did a lot of research here, um, and and clearly, you know, funding is one of the part of the problem, but perhaps it's also the ecosystem piece around around care, support, mentorship as well.
0: Yeah, well, you know, we've had Alison on the on the podcast a a bunch of times in the past. She's super passionate about sort of changing these things, and if this is something she's sort of looking to do to try and make a bit of a difference, then i 'm pretty sure she's not wanted to fail at this stuff so let's see what comes from this okay and finally we have a story over on Bloomberg so this is German bank lets clients vote on dress code clearly the best story <laughs> of oh, my goodness me uh, I feel this is a visual gag as much as anything else that's that's about to happen so which is always
1: good for podcasts by the way uh, yeah yeah
0: so Frankfurter spark Casey I'm looking at producer Laura Sparkassa. Sparkassa. Okay. We'll go with Sparkassa. Uh, a Frankfurt-based bank with 19 billion euros, so that's $22 billion for those over in the U.S. with no savings, uh, in assets is… How many is, world pays is that?
1: <laughs> half a world pays. Yeah, it's
0: half a world. No, it's… Yeah, it's half a world <laughs> yeah. pay. Um, so, it's setting up a survey over on its terminals in some of its branches, asking clients to vote on how its advisors should dress. Um, So there was three potential choices of outfit that was outlined, which, I'll be honest, basically go from very, very smart to smarter than I dress still. Um, So, you know, being in a situation where it's like suit, tie, pocket square, (laughs) chinos and and, and, uh, a jacket…
1: To like denim, where the two people wearing, he's wearing denim. He's wearing trainers though. Uh,
0: they, yeah, he is. But they both feel, they both look very uncomfortable they do. in denim, yeah. don't they? I, I think this this whole idea of basically being able to like, pick your advisor seems a bit weird doesn't it you know i wonder if they they'll start doing it before meetings it's like okay you've got an appointment with your mortgage advisor how how like, oh, would you like them to
1: dress yeah how casual would you like them
0: <laughs> hat <laughs> or no hat exactly like where does this end like would you like a, a male advisor like it's starting to get it's like tinder for banking
1: <laughs> this is swipe, length, swipe right exactly yeah <laughs> i'd like them this age range and uh their sporting interests should be soccer and it's very confusing but they just don't go extreme enough for me I mean, they really bank. should have, like, proper... If, if you're going to, to a bank, I want a proper Mary Poppins-style banker dress. I want to see the bowler hat. I want to see the watch chain. I want three-piece suit. Yeah. That's what I'm looking like, for. Especially on women. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, what is the Mary Poppins... I should guess they weren't any bankers yeah, in back then, back then. Mary
0: Poppins days, the were no Twitter, lady don't, bankers. Please, Twitter, don't hang me for this. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I support this idea if the next step is letting people pick the way the branch looks. Yes. some ideas there, o- lots although, of neon and smoke. although this
1: does, yeah. we know this leads to ba- uh, boaty boat boatface. And uh, <laughs> ultimately, the face. <laughs> this will lead to the uh, the most comedic outcome possible.
2: I do think, the dress code, like, my, I was going to say my favourite, but my only story on dress code, uh, was that one about Mary Barra at General Motors. So she apparently changed the dress code, which was like reams and reams of policy, just to two words, which was dress appropriately. And I think that just goes to culture so much, doesn't it? It kind of shows you trust your people. It kind of shows you take them as adults and you're willing to kind of give them a sense that, actually, I trust you to dress appropriately. You don't need a like, huge, huge dress code. And you certainly do need a vote that ends up looking like this. I mean...
3: Well, there are there are some things that should go to a public vote and some things that shouldn't, and I think I won't expand on that at this point.
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that seems very apt <laughs>
5: <sweet>, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: and that (laughs) that wraps up this week's new show thank you so much to all of our guests where can people find out a little bit more about you so caroline
2: uh i'm at c plum p-l-u-m-b or at fluidly
3: very good and simon uh at s-b-k-c-r-n on twitter or just the monzo forum i spend too much time there very good mr bates uh at jason bates on twitter very good and as for me you can
0: find me at david breer over on twitter um what do you guys think of this show oh goodness me it's always vote fun to hear what you would
1: like us to do yeah i mean like the
0: first story you can vote on what we'll wear we'll do anything adds another ten thousand listeners fine <laughs> let us know over at twitter on at fintech insiders and don't forget if you love the show we please 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 leave us one of those reviews and we'll get mr bates to read it out again uh thanks to all those who've already done it and we really really love reading those reviews um thanks also to everybody who got involved of our email and twitter following last week's request to find out why the barclays atm on warwick university campus gives out coins turns out it's just for the laundrette. Who knew? Thanks for listening, guys. Goodbye.